I'm never really sure how to start out sermons. I'm never sure, like, if I'm at a new church, it's a new thing here. So I, I don't know if I say salutations from Beach City, Christian life to you guys or not. We'll, we'll go with that. I don't know really how that's supposed to be done. But uh, I'm excited to be here, and um, I'm excited to see what God has, has laid in my heart to share. And I love history, and, and I think history is so important because when we look back at history, the, the Bible is a, uh, a great example of this. There's a lot of great stories that, in there, that are in there, and there's stories that have been inspired by God. And, and we look back at them, and we can see examples that have happened in the Bible that have repeated themselves over and over again. And uh, there, there's a story, this isn't in the Bible, but this is a story that... Uh, I was reading recently, I wish I'd have paid more attention when I was in school to my history classes, because there's some, some just fantastic stories, but have anybody heard of um, the Miracle of Dunkirk? Anybody heard what that is, Miracle of Dunkirk? So if you're a World War II history buff, you probably would have heard about that. Um, it's a story about a miraculous evacuation that occurred. And so back in 1939, Germany had come along and invaded, started to invade Poland, and France and Belgium started to repel. Britain had sent some troops in there, and they're, they're trying to, to keep Germany from taking over Europe. And what happened is Germany was such a well-oiled war machine that it came in there and just started sweeping over the country, and it started pushing uh, the Allied forces down, and it kind of put them into kind of a pincher hold where the forces were coming down from Belgium, from South France, and they were, they were trapping these Allied forces on this beach called Dunkirk. And what had happened is the, guy, the, the Allied forces had run out of supplies, they had ran out of food, um, they were getting very low on, on medical supplies, and they were trapped along this beachhead. And, and everything's kind of started to look hopeless for them. Because what had happened is, as they were trapped in this beachhead, the German Air Force, the Luftwaffe, started just strafing them with gunfire and just killing thousands of soldiers. And, and Churchill on the other side, just across the channel in the United Kingdoms, he started looking and he said, you know what, this, this could be the turning point in the war. Everything is, is against us. What do we do? And things were looking very grim. King George VI decided he was going to declare a national day of prayer. And so he threw it out there on their, on their radio stations. He, he said to all the churches, he said, you know what, ring your bells. We need to pray about this situation. This is a turning point in history where things could go very badly for us. And so the people actually turned out in droves. They lined up in queues for the church, every type of denomination, Anglican, Catholic, Protestant, you name it. They lined up and they started praying. And they prayed and they prayed. And on May 26th, miracles started to happen. And one of those miracles was that inexplicably, Hitler stopped his army from advancing. He had everything going for him. His supply chain routes were really well run. His, his, he had about six armored panzer divisions were coming down. They were all moving at a great rate. Uh, his backup artillery, his, his air force was, had air superiority. Everything was working exactly right, but for some unknown reason, he stopped. And he did not proceed any farther. And in fact, if you look through history books, there's no good explanation why he did it. He just stopped. And he could have literally just wiped out the rest of the Allied forces. There's about 336,000 troops that were there trapped on this beachhead. 
Another thing that happened was a big fog started to roll in off of the English Channel. And this fog rolled in and it stopped the German Air Force from strafing runs that they were doing and just killing thousands of soldiers. It made it impossible to fly. Now this time of year is not when they would have fog. It was early, it was in May. Usually it was a fall winter is when they'd have a lot of fog there. Inexplicable why this would happen. And the third thing... Between, the, 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 uh, between England and France, it's about 38 miles of water. And this water is always known to be very tempestuous, very, uh, very um, the waves are always crashing around there. It's, it's a very rough patch of water. And on May 26, that morning, that water was like glass. It was just perfect, perfect sailing. In fact, locals in the area said in, in 100 years they'd never seen that. And so what happened became the greatest military evacuation that had ever happened, where they took 338,000 troops from the shores of Dunkirk, and they used 860 ships. There was people out there in rowboats. There were, there were guys in 15-foot fishing boats. They were running troops back and forth and back and forth, and they did it for nine days, and they evacuated 338,000 people back over into the other side. And you look at that and you say, how did that happen? It's a miracle. And I'm going to give you two words that I think what happened. I think that Hitler had plans, but God had other plans. And what I like about those two words, but God, is anytime anything happens after those, if you're reading through the Bible and anytime you read through there and you hear the words, but God or but the Lord or anything, something amazing happens right after that. Something that's inexplicable, and it's usually changing the course of mankind. There are three little words, but is a conjunctive word, and it's a very powerful and tactical word. For example, if I say, I love you, but I don't like your attitude, it kind of negates the fact that I love you, right? I can't tell you I love you and then say, but I don't like your attitude. Because right away you're looking at me and you're saying, well, that doesn't make sense. But if I say, your attitude stinks, but I still love you. It totally changes the look of what that is. Because that but in there makes everything I said in front of it doesn't matter. But God appears about 45 times exactly in that order in the Bible, and it it actually occurs hundreds of times in different variations of that. So it's without... um, I'm going to, the context or where I'm going to read out of, we're going to kind of go on a couple different places here, but where I want to read out of is Ephesians 2, verse uh, 1 through 10. So if you have your Bibles or your smartphones, um, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to spend some time in there reading this. And I'm reading out of the ESV, so if you want to change, you know, whatever you usually read out of, I'm reading out of the ESV with this. And I'm just going to read these first. Um, Let's read the first seven verses, and uh, then we'll pray. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. 
and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for the word that you've given us. We thank you for Paul's letter to the Ephesians, where he is describing the fact that we are imperfect people and that we were all dead to you. Dear God, as we study this chapter, as we study these verses, we invite your Holy Spirit here. And we invite your Holy Spirit to touch the hearts of each people. We invite your Holy Spirit to speak into my life, dear God, that I would not say things that are contrary to your word. I would speak what you want me to speak, that I would speak with clarity, dear God. We ask this in your name. Amen. C.S. Lewis said, Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people live. And I love that saying. It's one of my favorite quotes. Jesus didn't come to make bad people good, but he came to make dead people live. And so we look at that, and as humans, we sometimes tend to care more about morals and behavior than the fact that real people, the, the fact that people are just dead. Spiritually, they're dead. They're not alive. And so what we do is, verses 1 to 3 here start to describe the human condition. They describe what is wrong with society. And we look at society, and sometimes we throw our hands up in the air, and we say, you know what, what's wrong with things that are going on in this world? You know, in fact, in our, probably the last couple of years, it just seems like it, it's got worse. You know, there, it, it felt like, you know, racism had kind of settled, you know, and now in this last year or so, racism seems to be as alive and well as it ever has ever been. There seems to be like a sexual identity crisis. People are not sure what gender and what sex they are. Um, there, there's, there's chaos happening all around us, and we label men as sick. We say, you know what, mankind is sick, and then we try to prescribe what we think is the best fix for them. We try to medicate them. One out of ten people in the U.S. are on some form of antidepressant. We try to make it so that they feel better by the drugs that we prescribe. And some of that is legitimate, but there's a lot of times where people are quickly prescribed drugs where maybe the, the result is not always just because of what it seems like in the surface. Maybe it's trying to fix the behavior. Um, we try to legislate. We try to indoctrinate. And then sometimes we even try educate. And, and educate, when I'm saying this here, I want you to take this right here. I think this is more, I'm, I'm referring to a little bit like with Darwinism, where he tried to explain where we came from and why we came this way. And he, and he has this very long um, dissertation of that, trying to explain away who God is through education. With legislation, we try to create laws to deal with behavior instead of fixing the root problem and what the root cause is. We see this even sometimes in our sports teams. A recent example was with the Cleveland Browns and Josh Gordon, where, you know, they gave him time and time again. They said, you know what, you have to change your behavior or else. You have to change your behavior or else. And his behavior didn't change, and he got cut. And so we see that type of thing where, where man fixates and tries to legislate the behavior instead of figure out what is the real problem that's going on. Man has a sin problem. He is dead, and his actions are a result of that. It's quite simple. It says it in the Bible. And so if, if that is the basis, why does that seem so hard to understand for people? Like, why is there that um, I don't understand how to fix the problem? 
Dead men don't do good things. And the sad realization is that most people don't realize they're dead. And I think that's the problem. It's kind of like um, trying to tell a dad when he's lost. You ever anybody try doing that? You know, it just doesn't work out well. You don't tell a dad that he's lost. You know, he's, he's taking the scenic route is what he's doing. He's never really lost. Um, and that's the problem with people is sometimes they don't realize that they're lost because when they're lost, they just don't know it until it's too late. No one wants to admit their loss. They don't even know it a lot of times. And in our nature, it seems foolish to man. So in Romans 8, 5 through 8, I want to read this. It says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's laws. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And so we see in society here that there's this almost hostility toward God or to Christianity, and it's biblical. There's a reason it is, because it says, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It's very straightforward and to the point. You know, sometimes we almost take our Christianity and we say, well, we have to defend it. We have to try to make it seem like it's palatable for everybody else. I don't think that's right. Because you know what? It says right here that the flesh is at war against the world. And so if it is, there is hostility. It's not going to be something that's going to be an easy fix, or it's not going to be something that people want to hear. Nobody wants to hear that they're, that they're um, a bad person. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So what happens is that people need to actually have spiritual discernment in order to understand who God is and the fact that he is a dead person. It's a powerful statement. Natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Natural man doesn't accept that. Lady Gaga maybe had it right when she said we were born this way. Because that's how we were. We were born this way. We were born with a natural inclination to things that are not good. The message of the gospel is foolishness. It doesn't even make sense. I have a friend of mine. Uh, I play hockey with him, and he's going through a really tough time. Right now, he is, his wife asked for a divorce. And he's like, Joe, he sent me a text and said, Joe, you've got to save my marriage. And I'm like, I'm reading that. And I'm like, Joe, you've got to save my marriage. I was like, well, that sounds like it's your kind of problem to save your marriage. But it also kind of, it brought out to me as like, how often have I shared with Brian? I mean, he sees my family, and he's almost like my family. They're, they're very good. They come and t- watch me play hockey, and they sit in a freezing ice arena, and it's bless them for it. But um, he's noticed that my family shows up and hangs out with me. And his first, and I told my wife, it's very interesting that I was the first person he texts once his wife asked for a divorce. And so I said, Brian, I'll meet with you. And so I met with him, and I just listened. He poured his heart out, and he was, you know, he's an emotional wreck. And he's a, he was an enforcer for um, actually a local, well, they used to be the Oyster Oilers. And, and he, he's a tough dude. I mean, he's missing most of his teeth up here. I remember one time he was telling me the story that he was in a fight, and he punched a guy on the ice, and his, the other guy's front teeth got embedded into his knuckles. And he went to the penalty box, and they're looking all over the ice for this guy's teeth and could not find him, and he took him and tossed him in the trash can because he didn't want to show him. So I'm talking, this, this is the type of guy he is. He's a, rough, he's a rough guy. 
But Brian was broken. He was crying. He was like, Joe, I don't know what to do. I need my wife because we have two kids and I, I don't know what to do. And I said, Brian, I said, I, I'm going to tell you what I believe is your problem. And I said, you know what? I think you need to start. I said, a good marriage starts with the Bible and it starts with God. And he said, well, you know how I feel about that. He's, Brian's not a, a Christian. And, it, and of course, he's a little anti-Christian. He grew up in a kind of a rough home. Um, and I said, Brian, why don't we start out with this? I'm going to pray for you and I'm going to keep praying for you. Will you allow me to do that? And so I prayed for him at, at um, uh, Panera Bread there. And, and so if you think about it, think, pray for Brian. He, he's in a tough spot, but he right away, as soon as I brought Christianity, as soon as I brought an answer that it wasn't just a fix for his marriage in, his walls went up and there was hostility because the natural nature of man doesn't want to hear that. They don't want to hear that, themse- that they themselves are bad. And he, a lot of times he talked about too, he's like, well, it's, it's my wife's problem. She's got this issue and she's got that issue. And I said, Brian, I mean, that's, that's another thing that's going to have to stop. You're going to have to admit who you are and that you have faults as well. The Bible has clear divides. You're either dead and you're, or you're either dead or you're alive. It's not a fun diagnosis, but it's the correct one and it's the biblical one. You're either dead or you're alive. So what does a dead person look like? Paul uses this example, and I think it's a very crucial example because when Paul uses it, a dead person is not fun to look at. They're not lovable. They don't interact. In fact, they're very comfortable being dead. When you're dead and you're laying in a coffin, you know, you're feeling very at peace because you're secure in there. Living people don't do well in coffins. But a dead person does because they're just, they're dead. They're not moving. They're lifeless. That's why verse 4 becomes so awesome. But it says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. And this talks about um, God being rich in mercy. And And I think this is a really important thing to understand here because I can, I can picture and I can visualize a God who has rich mercy and I can visualize a God who loves like a loving God but I think what really pulls this whole verse together in which he loved us he had rich mercy he's a God of love but then that he showed that love to us there's no other type of God that people worship today that actually reciprocates love and actually shows love to people Turn with me to John eleven thirty eight, And this is the story, you probably have all heard it many times, John eleven thirty eight. but it's a story about Lazarus. And I think this gives a good picture, a good illustration, kind of from death to life. So we know here that, a um, little background on this story, Jesus was away and he had friends, Mary and Martha and their, their, their brother Lazarus. They were, they were over in Bethany and... A servant came to Jesus and said, look it, Lazarus is sick. We're thinking he's going to die. Can you come over and, and say, you know, heal him or, or do something? It doesn't really say what exactly, I don't think. Um, but, but Jesus tells him, it said, when Jesus heard it in verse 4, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And so then it said Jesus kind of stayed a couple days and, and then he got the news that Lazarus had died. And his disciples, they're a totally confused mess here. If you read through that, you know, they're like, well, is he just sleeping? Is he actually dead? There's they're, they're going through a lot of things here. 
Um, then Jesus said, no, he's, he's actually died. He just it said, Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And then Thomas, one of the guys said, well, let's go because we're going to die with him. These, these disciples have no clue what's going on here. So Jesus is trying to step them through this process. And in verse 38 is when Jesus approaches the tomb. He goes there and he, he listens to Mary. And it says, when Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb, it was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Dead people don't smell good. Dead people stink. And that sounds harsh and it sounds graphic, but it's true. And right away, Jesus, I think if, if you look at this, Jesus, like Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father... I thank you that you heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. Lazarus had reached a point of death, and then he had a but God moment, where but God said, you know what? I'm going to bring you back to life. And in, in with dead people, I mean, if you think about just the, how amazing this story is, because when you're dead, you're not listening anymore. You're not hearing. And Jesus physically said, Lazarus, come out. Called him by name. I sometimes wonder if he'd have just said, you know, instead of saying, Lazarus, come forth, he'd have just said, come forth, Would all the people around the area had just risen from the dead. I don't know what that would have looked like, but, but Jesus is specific. And he calls out to you because when you were dead, he wants you. And I think that's in, it's important to realize that here, that he, he actually said Lazarus by name. He called him by name. And there's part of a story that we probably overlook a little bit in, in verse 12. It says, six days before the Passover, Jesus was in Bethany and Lazarus, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And they were having this dinner party. And think about this. Let's say you had been away on a business trip or something, and there was this dinner party, you were invited to it, and you showed up, and Lazarus is sitting there, and you're, you kind of didn't know what had went on. And you're, you're relaxing, and you're just normal chit-chat. And you say to, hey, Lazarus, what's up? You know, how have you been? What's been going on? And he's like, dude, you're never going to believe this. Uh, I was dead, and I was totally dead, and four days later, I'm alive again. And you're like, What? That's not right. You know, that doesn't happen. And Lazarus says, yeah. Jesus called me by my name, and he said, Lazarus, come out. That just gives me the chills almost thinking about that, how, how crazy that story is at this, at this dinner that Lazarus, you know, and here they just mentioned it. It's like, yeah, there was this dinner, and, and Lazarus was there. But if you think of how crucial that was, how important that is in the story that Lazarus was there, because he was dead. He was dead to the point where he was decomposing. And there he is. It's a beautiful illustration of the conversion experience. When we're dead, and then what we are when we're coming back to life, and how we can tell people about that. I think what gets a little bit hard for us a bit is that we as church people sometimes don't realize we stink as bad as other people. When we're reading that first verses, like 1 through 3, we're reading that, and we're thinking, well, that doesn't really say about me. It's, it's talking about the people out in the world. But I want to point out the second word of Ephesians 2, verse 1. 
It says you. It says me. And you who are dead in trespasses and sin. We are there right along with the rest of the humanity. We're there right in the mix. We're just as bad, we stink just as bad, and we're just as dead. So, and, and, and another thing too is when we're church people, I think what, what happens too is we, we feel that maybe we didn't have to come out of something that's bad or there was, there was as much going on. Like it reminds me of the story of Naaman. Remember Naaman had leprosy? And his servant girl said to him, you know, there's, a, there's this prophet that can heal you. And so Naaman gets all excited and packs a whole bunch of gifts and goes tearing off to Naaman, or to Elisha. And when he gets there, well, first of all, he goes to the king. And the king goes, dude, this guy's trying to start a war with me. I don't even know what he's talking about. Elisha hears about it, says, send him to me. I'll, I'll fix it. I got it. You know, I got God on my side. And Elisha doesn't even come out. It says he sends his servant out and said, go wash in the river seven times. What did Naaman do? Oh, yeah, let's go straight to the Jordan River and, and we'll wash. No, the Bible says he went away in a rage. This guy has a life-threatening illness. He had something very simple to do, washing. And he went away in a rage. And I thought, that's just a crazy part of the story. What, why did he do that? And then his servant came to him and said, hey, you know, about this, you still have leprosy. If Elisha would have said to do something hard, would you have done it? He's like, yeah, of course I would have. Isn't it just as easy to go do this? And I think he had that but God moment there where he's like, yeah. But God kind of triggered his thinking and says, you know what, that is. And God speaks to us in a variety of ways. Sometimes he uses friends. Sometimes he uses message, podcasts, songs. But sometimes he uses that to get us to think. Sometimes we look at the gift, even though it seems really simple, until we dig in and realize the sacrifice that God made to keep us alive. A dying Jesus on a cross is not that glamorous. It's not. So we were dead, stinking, ungrateful, disobedient, followers of Satan, children of wrath, full of sin, and that was us. But God still loved us. We sing this song, Jesus Loves Me. And we sing that song many times, and I think we repeat it over in our head, and that's part of the, we repeat it so much that we kind of forget and realize that Jesus actually does love us. And what does that love look like? In closing, I have a couple verses that talk about the God factor, the but God in our lives. We as Christians have an advantage. There's a lot of circumstances that factor into our lives. There's the money factor, the relationship factor, the employment factor, the health factor, the economic factor, but all that pales in comparison to the God factor. And that God factor is what does, what does God want to do in your life? So maybe you've been feeling attacked. Maybe you've been going to church. Maybe you've been going to church and you've, uh, your life has been good. Um, things have been going well. The job's been going well. You're feeling spiritually on top of it. But you still feel like you're maybe being attacked by someone. And there's just that kind of needling that, that thing going on. In 1 Samuel twenty three fourteen, it says, And David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. David was doing everything right. He was killing lions, killing bears, killing giants. In fact, he had been anointed to be king. So he was doing a lot of things right. He was in the will of God. And it said that Saul sought him every day, 
but God did not give them into his hands. So sometimes I think even if we're being attacked, or when we're being attacked, it's, it's a moment where God can step in and rescue us. The parallel verse to that is in Psalms 43, or 54, verse 3 and 4. For strangers are attacking me, violent people are trying to kill me, they care nothing for God, but God is my helper, the Lord keeps me alive. God is my rescuer. What about if you're feeling alone? Sometimes people, you just like, you know, I feel very lonely. People just don't get me. They don't understand me. How do we look at that? You know that there was a person that felt alone in the Bible? His name was Paul. Paul wrote about two-thirds of the New Testament. He was one of the, probably the greatest missionaries that we have recorded. He's preached, he set up churches all throughout Asia. He performed miracles. And while he was facing the greatest trial of his life when he was led before Rome, it says in 2 Timothy 4, 18, At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. I love how he puts this in the end. May it not be charged against them. Paul was, had subtle digs. He's like, don't, 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 you know, don't uh, let it be charged against them. But 17b says, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. Even though sometimes you feel alone and feel like, you know what? We're, we're, you know, I'm the only person out here that's doing the right thing. Paul had that same type of mentality where he used, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. What about we get ourselves in a mess when we disobey God? It kind of goes with our Sunday school lesson a little bit, the whole confession thing. Anyone ever done that? Have we ever found ourselves um, sinning? Anybody sin? Yeah, we all happen to sin. We mess up. And those of you who didn't raise your hand, you're sinning right now. So, um, You know, we have the story of Jonah where he's running in the opposite direction of God. And the storm hits that ship, you know, and he's, he's, he's hunkered down and it says he's sleeping. And, and I love how the, the crew say, hey, oh sleeper, wake up, we're about to die. And he's like, yep, you know what, that is my fault. I'm running from God. I should have told you. Um, you're going to have to toss me over. The verse that's really cool is it says, but God prepared a fish. And I just imagine when God seen this little, I don't know what kind of fish it was. There's always, there's all kinds of theories about this. But I remember when there's this tiny little fish that started swimming, you know, maybe 15 years before that. God was preparing it. And he said, you know what? I got plans for this fish. He's eventually going to change somebody's life. And he's eventually going to take this wayward missionary and he's going to send him back the other way. But God prepared a fish. And it was amazing how God used the fish to get Jonah back on track. He has solutions, and God can appear in the most unlikely places. That's how good God is. Now I want to talk about probably the biggest but God moment in the Bible. When everything seems lost, when there is no hope, when we've retreated and our back is against that English channel, when the Nazis are posed to strike and we're about ready to get annihilated, when 338,000 soldiers are about ready to die, and it looks hopeless, and nothing can happen. Acts 13, 29 says, And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree, and they laid him in a tomb. And everybody felt hopeless. And everybody said that, you know what, it's over. It's the end. It's not going to work anymore. But then verse 30 comes on. It says, But God raised him from the dead. And it's probably the most biggest, crucial, but God moment in the Bible. But God raised him from the dead. And so we can go from being dead to being alive. 
We can go from, instead of correcting bad habits, we can go to correcting root problems. We can go from being dead to being that, that corpse to actually being alive in Christ. If God can raise Jesus from the dead, just imagine what he can do for you. I want to leave you with that, so let's pray. Dear God, I want to thank you so much for your word. I want to thank you for the sacrifice that you gave of Jesus, and I want to Thank you that you looked at us as dead men, and even though we did not look good and we looked nasty and we didn't smell good, that you loved us anyway, and that your gift that you gave us is so right and so loving. And dear God, that we can, like Lazarus there, you know, we can, we can share that gift with other people. We can let other people know that there is another way out, and that is the difference between dead and alive. And dear God, as we are living a life of being alive in you, just help us to, to not take for granted the things that, that we read about in the scripture, that we will someday be raised up, seated with you in a heavenly place next to Christ Jesus. We want to thank you. Dear God, I want to bless this church, bless the people in it. In Jesus' name, amen.